Amen. Amen. Thank you, Doug. Good morning, everyone, again. I get to do baby dedications, deep dives, VBS, and preach. It's fun being a family pastor, an elder here. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Today we're talking about how the Lord changes hearts. I got a question for you. Have you ever had a change of heart on something? I've had a few over the course of my life. Uh, I went from saying coffee tastes like burnt water to now trying to get every ounce of flavor out of that little bean, that little roasted bean. I used to make fun of reading in junior high, and now, uh, and even in high school, I read everything I could get my hands on, uh, partially, and I'd say mostly because of the call of the Lord on my life to ministry, but now I love reading. I used to think that the book of songs, Psalms had too much emotion to it, just too much. And then I saw how it shapes prayer and meditation, and how Jesus himself quotes from the book of Psalms the most in the Gospels. And now it's up there with the favorite, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Baseball is another one. Two heart changes, actually. Used to love it back in the 90s where the Atlanta Braves and Greg's Maddox were tearing things up. And then I got to see that eight guys just stand around for like three hours, bat three times, and if they hit it once, they're doing good. And I'm like, this is a weird sport. And now, <laughs> now I love it. Now, if I could buy uh, season tickets to anything, it'd be the Storm Chasers. And I could do kingdom work there in between pitches. I could have a discipleship conversation, write a sermon. Like, look, I got the whole thing planned out. Just trust me on that one. I'll be there. You might get invited. Uh, if you're jumping in with us, we're going through First and Second Kings. Uh, and there seems to be a not, not a lot of good heart change in those two books. Uh, These two books of the Bible include the pinnacle of the Old Testament, where the temple gets built and dedicated, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and it's an amazing moment in the history of God's people. Then hearts change for the worst, and they stop following God and his covenant, and then we get the bottoming out of the Hebrew Old Testament history, where you get the two kingdoms split, and then they get taken off into exile. They lose. You get the bottoming out of the Old Testament. There doesn't seem to be a lot of heart change in the Old Testament. And hearts in the Old Testament include your entire internal self. They don't have a word for the mind. So your heart includes your thoughts and your will, your desires, and all your emotions. But still, even amidst all of that, the Lord was still at work. He was still calling his people to turn their hearts and follow him to come back. And the Lord showed up in the prophets in these books. And even though their names, first and second Kings, the Hebrew Old Testament puts them in the prophetic book section because we get a bunch of stories from prophets running around calling people back to God. And the author, who is likely one or multiple prophets and a narrator through the whole story and how they wrote it, they preach to us. The whole book preaches to us to turn back to God, to stop following false gods, false idols, and to turn back to a good God who has a good promise and a good covenant for a good life. And Doug introduced us to one of those prophets last week, Elijah. He was going around the northern kingdom where they were following a war and fertility and rain god named Baal. And Elijah called for a drought, admits that, and it happened. There was no rain. Rain god couldn't even produce rain. And then Elijah went beyond the borders we saw in the story last week uh, where Elijah went to a widow and her son. The son died and Elijah called on God to raise him back to life. And God did. The boy came back to life, and the widow, who is likely a follower of this rain god Baal, she had a heart change. She said, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the true God. She had a heart change. 
And so now we pick up the next big story in Elijah's life, because Elijah heads back to the northern kingdom, uh, to the tribes of Israel, where Ahab is on the throne. Ahab is a bad king with a bad wife named Jezebel, who's also a false god priestess. They are bad news. But good news, the Lord is still at work, and now God wants to send rain again. And his people are suffering. There's a, there's a famine in the land. And in 1 Kings 18.1, God tells Elijah, go tell Ahab that rain's coming again. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Kings 18. We'll skip a little bit of that first section there where they finally meet each other. And we'll skip to where Elijah and Ahab are talking. And Elijah uh, gets his message almost to Ahab. Let's read 1 Kings 18.17 through 19. Here it is. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Man, Elijah has a mouth. He has the audacity to call out a king to his face, where this sounds more like a verbal street fight than a king and a prophet exchanging some pleasantries and words. He doesn't even tell Ahab about the rain like he's supposed to. Elijah wants Ahab to get everybody together at Mount Carmel, not Caramel, that's the candy, Carmel, it's a mountain in Israel, and all Israel and the prophets of Baal and Asherah get them all together for what? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us. And let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut into pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. It's a good idea. Elijah wants to turn this street fight of words into a face-off with the gods. You can almost hear from the pages of Scripture, like if you put it up to your Let's get ready to rumble. And then some jock jams go or something. Hebrew jock jams. Elijah is a good prophet too. He's not just trying to be correct or to win a competition or to prove prove whose God is stronger. He knows that there's only one true God and that God made a covenant with his people and they have gone against it. Both Elijah and the Lord are about getting people to stay true to that covenant and to turn to the real true God. Elijah and the Lord are calling them back, and he calls the people not only to get their theology right, but their allegiance, who they follow, who they obey and listen to. And Elijah tells his mouth on him. He's using, he isn't using friendly words here. He calls their wavering limping. And it hits pretty hard in Hebrew because the words for follow that we see there in Hebrew are literally walk after. So he's like, quit dragging your feet and walk. He's got a mouth on him. And let's keep reading because it gets better. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them 
And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there's no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either, is a, either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until blush, blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there's no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Both the narrator and Elijah are doing two big things here. First, they're showing that this whole thing is set up to give Baal the advantage. He's a war god, and this is a battle. They get to use Baal's animal, the bull. They get to go first. They have more prophets. They have a freshly made altar right there, and they're asking for fire from heaven, which in a Hebrew mind is like lightning, which is Baal's weapon of choice. Whenever you see depictions of Baal, he usually has a lightning bolt with him. And second, the second thing they're doing, Elijah and the narrator are helping us see that Baal isn't really a god. He's not there. Nobody's home. And Elijah uh, does this in a certain way. He's mocking them. He's, he's mocking Baal. They're not using nice words. These are not encouragements or simple descriptions or helpful options. Elijah is not going to win a sportsmanship award from this competition. These words are, at best, disrespectful. And if you get into the depth of meaning of these words, they could be downright dirty and vulgar, which I'm not going to get into because I'm the family pastor. <laughs> and all of this is to shame Baal. The narrator and Elijah are roasting him. And here's the thing. Elijah is pointedly and comically helping the people of Israel see that Baal is garbage, he's trash, he's weak. And honestly, this is a good thing for the people of God to hear and see happening. They're all there. They're seeing Baal fail hard. They're hearing Elijah mock Baal and put him to shame. They're he if their hearts are going to change and follow the one true God, then exposing the idols as powerless is a part of the way that Lord, the Lord does it. So the Lord can change hearts, like we're talking about today, by exposing idols as powerless. And honestly, with that underlined word, I think I underlined it, that word powerless, put whatever disrespectful words you want in there. And don't be nice about it either. Like, oh my, Nick, you're the family pastor. You can't say those things. But sin, death, and the devil and their false gods and their idols don't deserve any compassion. They can't be saved. They aren't made in the image of God. They bring evil things and are powerless against the Lord. So roast them. The Lord exposes false gods like a Division II cupcake team that is a warm-up game against your favorite college football team. He exposes them like a kid playing basketball and getting rejected by Shaq. The Lord can change our hearts toward him by reminding us how absolutely worthless idols are. He takes the luster off of them. Idols mess up our life. They can't respond to us. They're silent to our cries. When it speaks, if they do speak, they lie because they have lost. They want worship, but all they get is the opposite. They get mocking. And hearing idols mocked can help our hearts turn to the Lord. Here's the deal. We might have false gods that we're following. We might have idols. Though they may not, we may not call them gods, and we may not have little statues that, uh, of a bull with a lightning bolt, but there are things we give more of ourselves to than to the Lord. And we expect those things to give us goodness, but like a mailman on a tricycle, they're not going to deliver. Yes, mock them, get them, light them up. 
If we were to ask ourselves, am I doing whatever this thing is, whatever my life is being given to, because I love God and love others like myself, because we're both image bearers of God? And if I get a no to that question, we might keep digging to see if that's an idol. And like Baal worship, idols bleed us dry. We accept a little bit of harm to get a little bit of what we desire from them. So, Because they think, we think they're going to give us a good life. We find time, money, energy to spend on things that lead us away from the Lord and towards whatever it is that we think is actually going to give us goodness. We may know what they are already. The Holy Spirit may be bringing them up in your mind right now. And in that case, know that they are weak and they're worthless compared to the Lord. Or we may not know what our idols are. They can pop up as life goes on. There are ebbs and flows in life. Rhythms get messed up. We move. We change jobs. We change hours. There's new stress at work. There's new relational trouble wherever. And, or just simply a new season with a new rhythm, like summer. It's coming, I hope. It's like snowing this morning. But summer is coming, everybody. And soon enough, a new habit is formed, and we find a new way to relax and calm down that cannot be done for God's glory. Or stress goes up. Anger comes out. We get a little snappier or just downright harsh. Our language displays a shift in our hearts away from the Lord. And sometimes we come to see months later that what we turn to or what we have turned to these past few months is an idol that takes us away from following the Lord and enjoying him. But mocking reminds us of how worthless idols are compared to the Lord. Mocking helps us because it's memorable. It helps us remember that whenever that idol pops up, we already know. We have a foundation set. It's garbage. It's worthless. It's a hook in our mind that whenever we see it, we immediately think it won't respond to us. It's powerless against the Lord. And you say, but Nick, my sin is getting the best of me right now. My false God has me in its grips. I can't break free. It doesn't feel weak. It feels strong. And I hear you and I see you, and I've been there too. Elijah's there right now. It's one versus 450. But I have one name for you. His name's Jesus. He's the one who breaks the grips of idols and the death they bring. Jesus puts them to open shame, like Colossians 2 says, by his death and resurrection, and he promises life to us. And he fulfills it too. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, that's those of us who believe when he returns, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, it's in Hosea, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? He's mocking them. They have nothing. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Idols ask us to give us, give our lives to them, shed our blood, expend our energy, raving about for them, where Jesus comes and sheds his blood in perfect control and peace, and he gives his life to those who believes. Elijah doesn't win, but uh, versus 450 prophets. Same with us. Us versus our sin is a loss for us. But the real battle is the one true God against evil and idols and sin, and God, Jesus incarnate, Jesus, God incarnate, wins every time. He wins versus your sin and mine, your idols and mine. He wins that battle every time through his death and resurrection. So I gave you a name. We call out to him by name. When you feel yourself following them again, cry out to Jesus. Which brings us to the next point of the story. 
where the Lord can change our hearts by proving his power. He does this in our passage. Team Baal just went and failed. So let's keep reading verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. What Elijah's doing here, he's stacking the deck against the Lord. But in his own way, he's reminding everybody watching, all of Israel is right there. He's reminding God's people whose they are. He reminds them that the Lord named them. He gave them the name Israel. He made them who they are. He repairs this thrown-down altar with 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And three times pouring four jars of water. I'm no mathematician, like Eric says, but that's 12 total. That's just helping us remember what is going on here. And that trench holds about 15 liters of water, and that thing is completely soaked. It is not going to set itself on fire. And it's also the right time for the sacrifice. Let's keep reading. This is the fun part in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, this is like the twilight sacrifice God's people were supposed to do every day. Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that, O Lord, you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Baal had all day from morning till twilight to do something on his term. And he got nothing. On the Lord's turn, that altar never stood a chance. Elijah roasted Baal, showing his weakness, and the Lord roasted this altar by his power. Fire from heaven was the biggest lightning bolt ever. Team Baal thinks they got a guy that can do lightning bolts. We got the Lord our God. Not only did the Lord's lightning bolt consume the sacrifice and wood, which makes sense, those things burn, but it also consumed the rock, the dust, and the water. I mean, lightning is 50,000 degrees, and rock vaporizes at 10,000 degrees. This is the biggest lightning bolt ever. It's supernatural from the Lord, showing that every part of creation is his to create and control and consume. He has the power. And what is Elijah's prayer? Elijah wants the Lord to turn their hearts back to him. They need to quit limping between these two and go full in on the Lord. And Elijah and the Lord want his people back. And this should be no surprise to us. In Deuteronomy, the book with the covenant that set up God's people, it says this in Deuteronomy 4, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image to form the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for his people. He wants them back. 
And he can turn their hearts back with a display of his power. And the good thing is they respond. They cry out, the Lord is God. The Lord turns hearts by showing you, proving his power. But Elijah doesn't stop there. In the next verses, uh, Elijah and the people, they get rid of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And like the start of this story is the end with an interaction between uh, Ahab and Elijah. And instead of a battle of words and calling each other names like troublemaker, Elijah, who is still sassy, tells him to go up, look, have a snack, and watch the rain come. He finally gets that message to him after all that. The Lord is ending the trouble. He's ending the famine. He's giving rest and relief to his people. And I'd like to tell you that this turn of hearts lasted, but again, it's the book of First and Second Kings. We know where it ends up, the people of God losing and they go, them going into exile. But again, I have one name for you. His name's Jesus. He was a sacrifice that took the lightning, that put the idols to shame, and displayed God's power by his death and resurrection. And it turns our hearts to him. We get to see him give his life as a sacrifice for our own sin, our own idols. And this is for good. It's a complete victory over sin, death, the devils, and the idols they make. You say, Nick, Easter was last week, and we're still talking about the resurrection? Yes, absolutely. The resurrection changed everything. Jesus, who has indestructible life, took our sin and death, defeated evil by him dying and rising again. We will talk about it from now on into eternity. Our entire life, inside and out, and eternity can be changed by him when he brings his goodness. He can bring his rest and relief. He can show his power. It isn't total yet, but it will be. We're promised eternity, and still, there's refreshment and relief and rest now. He brings the rain, even now. Like a friend and brother from my city group, his name's Blake. He and his wife are adding a third child like any minute now. And he was overwhelmed and brought to tears last Thursday at a Monday Thursday gathering. And what brought him to that point was the power and love of God. In talking with him, he said that there's this felt pressure to be a good parent in culture. There's a ton of weight knowing that you're the main disciple maker and evangelist for your own children. And there's too few hours in the day and too many kids, and there's a lot of kids, there's too many kids to give them the love that you really want to give them. And now they're adding a third kid, which I think is totally the hardest kid to add. You're outnumbered. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ that can care for your kids alongside of you, and that is great. But still, he was overwhelmed with this, and then he was overwhelmed with the thought of the power and love of God. His heart was turned toward Jesus, hit like a ton of bricks, that the Lord, the Lord loves him and his kids so well. The Lord loves his kids perfectly, totally, never ending, and he gets to show it on the cross. The Lord shows it on the cross. If this display of God's power, just a movement in his own heart was a relief to him. It brought rest and relief to Blake as a parent, as he was simply in awe in the power of love of God through Jesus. The rest came to a troubled heart. He can still love his kids. Blake and his wife can still love his kids as best as they can, but he can rest knowing that the Lord loves them perfectly, completely, and for all eternity. And because of the power of the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb, sometimes that relief comes now like it does for Blake in his trouble, 
His power is displayed in life now, and it can turn our hearts. There's a ton of stories about this. But we can also, when we see that trouble, we can call out to the Jesus. We can call out to the name of him, the name of the Lord. And we can follow him. We can stop limping around and follow the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that you prove your power both in the Elijah story. We thank you that you prove it completely in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that you still work in power now. Thank you for this. Thank you for showing us that the idols that come up in our life are weak and worthless and don't deserve anything but mocking. Would you help us remember that? Would you help us remember that and see your power so we might turn our hearts towards you. We might follow you. We might go full in on you and call upon your name and believe your good news and trust you for goodness because of the good covenant you made. We thank you for this. Would you move in our hearts even now? We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, everybody.